Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. CISA was one of our most popular 2020 podcast topics. So today, we're bringing you more on the CISA with some year-end reminders, including disclosure trends that have emerged, along with what we're hearing from analysts. My guests today are Chip Curry and Jonathan Odom, two PwC national office partners. This is a return visit for Chip and Jonathan to talk about CISL. If you haven't already listened to their podcast from September on CISL implementation lessons, I encourage you to check it out after you listen to today's podcast, of course. You can find a link to it in today's show notes. And with that, let's get started. So Chip, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me again to talk about one of our most popular topics from 2020, which is uh, the new CISL requirements. And I think, you know, as we're moving into year end, thought it would be a great time to talk about some key reminders, some things about disclosure, et cetera, related to CISL. But before we jump into that, I know it's not directly CISL disclosure related, but The recent stimulus bill passed by Congress and that was signed into law did include some changes to the accounting-related provisions of the CARES Act. And Chip, I know something we've talked about before because it did talk a little bit about CECL. So uh, can you just give us a quick update on that? Yeah, sure, Heather. So there are two areas of the CARES Act that provided certain entities the ability to defer certain areas of gap you know, related to credit losses. So just to hit those two areas, the first is, you know, what's been referred to as the CECL deferral or what was section 4014 of the CARES Act. So as a quick reminder, this is an optional temporary deferral of the application of ASU 2016-13. That's the credit loss standard that included CECL. The new bill didn't change the scope of the types of entities that can apply that deferral. So the deferral still only applies to insured depository institutions, bank holding companies, and their affiliates. But what it did change is when that deferral ended. So originally, the the deferral was scheduled to end on December 31st, 2020. And the new law pushes that out such that the new end will be the earlier of January 1st, 2022, or the first day of the fiscal year of the insured depository or bank holding period that begins after the national emergency is uh, declared to be over. So it pushes back, it extends um, how long an entity could elect to defer the CECL standard. So that's section 4014. The the other section um, related to the guidance around TDRs or trouble debt restructuring. So, So that's section 4013. And, and what, the, what the new law did is it changed two things. The first thing it did is it changed the ending date at which that deferral. And um, again, it was scheduled to end uh, or only apply to modifications that occurred um, before December 31st, 2020. And now that's been pushed out to the earlier of January 1st, 2022, or the date that is 60 days after which the national emergency on COVID is declared over. So modifications that occur in 2021 will be eligible to apply the CARES Act deferral for TDRs. The legislation did not change the other requirements that need to be met in order to defer uh, the application of the TDR guidance. The other thing it did is it clarified that uh, insurance companies would be considered a financial institution that's eligible to apply the TDR deferral. So the TDR deferral 
has a different scope of entities than the Cecil one does. It refers to financial institutions, and the new law clarified that an insurance company would qualify for that. But other than that clarification around insurance companies, as I said earlier, Heather, there was no change to the type of entities that that could apply these, these deferrals. So, Chip, I think key thing for most of our audience would be that this doesn't apply to them and they should just proceed as planned with their regular adoption and with applying the TDR guidance as applicable. Absolutely. If, if you don't qualify for the, you know, kind of the list of, of types of entities, then, then you're absolutely right. The, the CARES Act, or, you know, provisions really don't apply to you, and and you should you should consider, uh, you know, going ahead with your normal policies and procedures. Okay, great. Those are great reminders. And just for our audience, um, we are also in the process of publishing an updated version of the in-depth on both the impact of COVID nineteen and the CARES Act. Uh, not tons of changes in them, but we thought it'd be great to update them and make sure they were kind of set and ready to go as year-end resources. So look for those this week as well. And then one other thing I did want to mention since we're talking about the CARES Act before we get into CECL disclosures, and I've previously mentioned, it's come up on, I think, podcasts about the FBI conference and, and maybe in some other venues that the FASB had said at the FBI conference in November that they had planned to issue a Q&A related to government grants. And, you know, as we know, there are many government grants from the CARES Act and companies looking at that accounting. However, based on our latest discussions with them, that's no longer the case. And instead, they're going to just continue with outreach and small group meetings, um, including potentially a, a public board meeting to determine next steps for that project. So wanted to let people know they don't need to look for that Q&A right now. Um, and if you are dealing with government grant accounting, highly encourage you to listen to our podcast from last summer. So with all of that preface, then why don't we start and jump into our real topic for today, which would be CECL disclosures. And Jonathan, obviously you've been our guest before talking about CECL disclosures, but can you give us an update on some of our perspectives and how things have evolved since Q3? Sure, Heather. Thanks for having me back. Um, as we talked about in our podcast in September, there's a fair bit of prescribed disclosures in the CECL guidance, but there's also a fair bit of disclosure guidance that's fairly principles-based. So the good news with that is, at least for these principles-based concepts, it doesn't tell you exactly what to do. The bad news is it doesn't tell you exactly what to do. So there's a lot of judgment and a lot of teasing out what's relevant to investors, what can be done, et cetera. One of the underlying key tenets of the disclosure objectives, however, is explaining the drivers of the allowance for credit losses and the changes during the period. So as we've looked at the first three quarters, I think we've seen some pretty clear trends as we progress from Q1 to Q2 to Q3. One of those has been more disclosure around macroeconomic assumptions. So these would be forecasts of GDP, forecasts of unemployment, those types of things. We've seen more entities providing those forecasts, at least for the base case scenarios. And I think we've seen more dynamic disclosures around the periods, each period, what's going on, kind of uh, a more dynamic disclosures around the, the actual key drivers, even if that's somewhat qualitative uh, as well. We've seen some entities also, as we move through time, provide sensitivity assessments around the CECL reserves. But I would say that each of those sensitivity assessments have been a little bit different. Some talk about if we wait at all to the downside scenario. Some talk about if we adjust certain assumptions in certain ways. I would say not 
that it's not most companies providing sensitivity assessments, but um, we, we have found those to be fairly well received when they are presented. And then, Jonathan, maybe just a quick clarifying question on that. So when we talk about um, disclosure, maybe of some of the macroeconomic variables or even some of the sensitivity analysis, if I'm your sort of typical consumer products company listening to this podcast, are we seeing those disclosures from them? Or is this really more something that we're seeing coming from the financial institutions? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Heather raises some good points that, you know, just a reminder that CECL does apply beyond the financial services industry. It's most prominent, if you will, in the financial services industry for the obvious reasons. But based upon your particular facts and circumstances, you know, it still might be material or significant to you, even outside of banking, insurance, those types of sectors. So my... Um, I guess discussion here is prominently based on the, you know, the banking sector where it's more prominent. But I think registrants issuers should be looking at, you know, the disclosure criteria, the objectives and evaluating whether some of these are meaningful uh, for the investors to understand their own situation. Yeah, and I guess in particular, given what happened in 2020 from an economic perspective, maybe there are additional companies that this is more material than maybe they would have even anticipated a year ago. So definitely something that you shouldn't just assume that this is not applicable to you because you're uh, a non-financial institution. So then, Jonathan, sort of with that background, then um, one of the things where places where I know we get a lot of questions is just trying to understand what we're hearing from analysts and what they're looking for when they're using these disclosures? We did talk to a number of analysts, in this case, in the banking sector, given the prominence of it, um, the prominence of the disclosures and the impact of credit on the banking sector. Over several quarters, we spoke to um, maybe half a dozen analysts in each of those quarters to get their input on what they found helpful, what they would like to see more of, et cetera. I would say, generally speaking, you know, through the analysts, the investors where they would like to see more is in a few areas. First, more detail around the various scenarios. So if you're using multiple scenarios to come up with your estimate, uh, that's been that's been an area where they'd like to see more understanding of the different scenarios. They would also like to see more consistency across entities to make it easier for them to compare. I think that's a little bit harder uh, to ask for given the principles-based concepts, but we've seen a little bit of alignment in the banking sector directionally. And they often ask a lot of questions around the, the so-called qualitative reserves. What, what does that mean? Like, help me understand why that's necessary. As I, as I talked about earlier, we've seen more disclosures around macroeconomic assumptions. I think that's been well-received in understanding the period-to-period changes. But like I said, one of the things that they would like, again, it's a, somewhat of a tall order, is you know some consistency in what's presented and what periods going into the future are presented, et cetera. But all in all, they do view the macroeconomic assumptions, at least in the banking sector space, given the importance of it, to be um, particularly relevant for their understanding of the Cecil reserves. And they, they've told us that they're really using these disclosures in three ways. One, understanding the relative assumptions across entities, right? So if you think about GDP and unemployment, what is Bank X versus Bank Y, I think. They're also looking to understand directionally how does the assumptions of the particular entity compare to their own assumptions of unemployment, GDP, et cetera. So at least understand kind of a directional potential impact if you know the future looks different than what's projected. 
And then they also look at it very closely, kind of period to period, understand, help help them understand what's really driving the overall reserve change from you know Q1 to Q2 to Q3 to year end. I would say analysts also told us that when the sensitivity analysis was provided, that they found that to be helpful. Although the, they did say that in some cases, they felt like without having more information, it was a little bit hard to fully fully digest um, how to think about that. So I think those are probably the, if I had to summarize it, some of the key areas of focus. What's important, or maybe an important note, is that the the analysts also had told us that in some cases, at least, they had had conversations with either the SEC or the FASB as part of their outreach efforts. And so, you know, we would expect these to be at least considered as the SEC and the FASB are thinking about down the road, any potential changes to disclosure requirements. And then I would say through all of these discussions over time, one thing that was apparent to me is that not all investors or maybe even all analysts really understand all of the complicated nuances and details and, and jargon that kind of underlies, you know, the, the Cecil counting framework. I, I mentioned that because as you're thinking about your own disclosures and you're thinking about how to make it meaningful to investors that taking a step back from the jargon and really thinking about it from the user's perspectives, is it presented in a way that helps them understand, you know, the results and the, and the changes period to period? Yeah, I think, Jonathan, especially that the last point that you just made, I think is, again, if I take my sort of non-FS lens and say, how does this apply more broadly? I think for, you know, all companies, this is a change this year. And so to the extent it is in any way material, making sure that your disclosure is clear so people can understand the impact. But the other point you made that I thought was interesting is thinking about how you compare to others in your industry. And so just being aware of how others have disclosed this, what they're including could be helpful, again, whether you're a financial institution or not. So I think those are good good reminders across the board. One thing you mentioned, though, that Chip, I want to go to you with the question, is Jonathan mentioned the fact that analysts made a point of telling us that these are sort of questions and observations that they've made in discussions with the FASB and the SEC. And I know that you have been talking to the FASB as some of their work on, you know, the post-implementation review of CECL. Um, and so are we hearing anything from the FASB specific to disclosures? So, so you're right. I mean, the FASB has done a good amount of outreach to preparers, to auditors, to analysts already on the CECL accounting standard, even though we're not even through the first full year of adoption. And certainly a lot more is, is planned. Um, in addition, they've been actively reviewing publicly available information like filings, press releases, and, and analyst presentations. And, and as Jonathan mentioned, my sense is they've heard a lot of the feedback and uh, from analysts and, and and are, are sensitive to some of the points that, that Jonathan made. You know, with this respect to disclosure specifically, you know, my sense is, is that the FASB will naturally want to let the first year of adoption play out, let the first annual reporting process go through, you know, read through what's in the 10Ks and, and in the, the financial reporting. And then we'll, we'll, we'll do additional outreach throughout 2021 and then come back to the board with some feedback on, uh, you know, what they heard around disclosures and, and what they've seen. So then, Chip, maybe since we're on the topic, I know I asked you specifically about disclosures. 
But any other sort of general observations about CECL that we might expect to come out of this post-implementation review, or is it really too soon to make any you know, predictions? There's two areas the FASB is actively doing research on and, and outreach on. The first is the troubled debt restructuring model. Um, and what, what place does the concept of a troubled debt restructuring really have when you're in an expected credit loss model? So that's one aspect they're looking at. And the second thing that they're looking at is this distinction between assets that are purchase credit deteriorated and assets that are not purchase credit deteriorated. And, you know, the difference in sort of the day one treatment between those two assets. So no surprise on the topics that they're doing outreach on. And, and again, those are just their initial topics from sort of their initial reviews. So we, I fully expect them to, to look at other aspects and, and other elements as they continue to get feedback. Okay, I think that's helpful perspective. And again, uh, something probably for your average company applying CECL sounds like not a lot that's going to impact and they should just keep on with the current guidance. So Jonathan, going back to you, another topic I always like to ask you about is SEC comment letters and any new developments or anything you'd highlight that we've seen in terms of questions coming from the SEC. Yeah, I would say similar to how Chip described the the FASB watching very closely. We know the SEC is also, um, particularly in the banking space, but I would imagine in other sectors where it may be more important, uh, monitoring disclosures and the trends in disclosures, but they haven't put out a lot of comment letters. Um, so I wouldn't take that to mean that they might not have comment letters in the future or they're not paying close attention. But to date, there's really only been, I would say, almost like a handful of comment letters. Most of them have been around non-GAAP adjustments. So taking out the, you know, the, the CESOL-driven provision and replacing it with another metric like charge-offs. So we've got a handful of comment letters with regards to that. Uh, we've seen some other very specific comment letters around, for example, uh, disclosing the reasonable and supportable period used for the CESOL forecast. Um, but otherwise, it's been more, you know, in industry meetings and speeches, you know, encouraging robust disclosure, but not really through the the comment letter process to date. So then that's, I think, definitely very helpful for companies to think about as they prepare for your end. Maybe the last question, big question I'd ask you guys is, you know, obviously given the timing of when we're issuing this podcast, we know a lot of companies are in the process of preparing their, their year-end disclosures. And so any pointers or tips that you would pass along, either from things we've seen, companies doing well, or maybe even just general good practices from a disclosure perspective? I would say it's it's really important to keep the objectives of the disclosures in mind. So there's a section in the CECL guidance around disclosures, and the, the first part of it lays out what the objectives are. And those objectives say that the disclosures should enable the user to understand the credit risk inherent in the portfolio, how management monitors the credit quality of the portfolio, management's estimate of expected credit losses, and the changes period to period. There's a lot of prescribed disclosures and the devil's in the detail. There's a lot, like we've talked about a number of times, there's a lot of principles-based concepts and disclosures. But I think if you keep those objectives in mind as you're thinking about fulfilling the disclosures, that'll be really helpful. And then, as I said earlier, put yourself in, in the shoes of the user. Right. Like if we step away from the jargon and, and the stuff that we're all so close to, you know, when we write it down and we read it, we think it makes sense. But if you take a step back and say, as an investor, 
Am I really able to digest what's going on and what the drivers are, et cetera? I think that'll lead you to better disclosure. Yeah, Jonathan, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think first thing to remember is this is a new standard for the users of financial statements as well. This is the first annual reporting period where they're seeing this, and it is very different than the credit loss model we had prior to that. And I think the other thing I'd add on to Jonathan is there's a lot of disclosures around CECL, a lot of required disclosures, um, a lot of disclosures around you know the estimate of credit losses. And it's really important that management, I think, try to make an effort to to link all of those disclosures and explain how different things interact with each other to kind of tell the complete story of the company's credit exposures and credit profile. And as Jonathan mentioned, how, how that's driven the level of the allowance for loan losses and how it's changed through the report. I think those are both good reminders. It's interesting. You guys both mentioned you know, the number of detailed disclosures CISL requires. And I actually was reflecting when I was preparing for this podcast that you know we didn't go through the laundry list of, hey, remember, you need to disclose all of these things. Um, I know from previous discussions with you guys, partly because it's a long list. But Chip, if I were a listener that just wanted to double check and make sure I did have the totality of what's required, where would be a good place to go look, obviously, other than looking at the standard? So I think in our loans and investments guide, um, we, we have a chapter on, on presentation and disclosure. In addition, our financial statement presentation guide has some information about the disclosure. So I think that, that would be a good place to look. You know, the, the SEC has put out some disclosure topic, like disclosure topic five, uh, that they've referred to in the past, reminding people of those types of disclosures that, that they're looking for around loan modifications and things like that. So I think those are those are two good points of reference. And then the other thing I would do is, is you know, back to Jonathan, I think it's a good thing to do to just look at your peers in the industry and and see what they're doing, see what their disclosures look like, listen into, you know, uh, reflect on some of the questions that you've gotten from analysts throughout the year on, on, on Cecil. And, and if you can, you know, enhance the disclosures to sort of get that information out there. I think all really good recommendations. I think sometimes, you know, you have adopt a new standard in Q1. By the time you get to Q4, you can get a little complacent, but it's a good time to just I guess, uh, dot your I's and cross your T's to make sure you have everything. So it's always very insightful. And I, I appreciate all you had to share today. Um, as you guys well know, before we wrap things up, I would like to ask you the more quote fun question. And given that it's January and especially still early January, um, what's on my mind is New Year's resolutions, because especially for 2021, I think it's particularly good time to maybe vow to make some changes or hope things are going to change. Um, so just curious for both of you, if you are a fan of New Year's resolutions or not, and then if you are, if you're willing to share one. So Chip, I'll start with you. Uh, exercise, you know, be well, work well. One of the things I've tried to do, you know, is with the more work from home is, is take the extra time I had for, for commuting and dedicate that to, to running and exercise. So one of the for things I want to focus on in 2021 is, is, is to keep that up uh, and keep going. Excellent. Very good uh, resolution to have. And Jonathan, how about from your perspective? Mine, mine's the same. It's to get more fit. Um, although I'll say it's it's more my, my, my wife's New Year's resolution for me. So uh, 
that'll make it harder to break. But uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get on that that treadmill and the elliptical a little more often um, than I than I have been. Very good. Well, I did read a very interesting article about taking any good habits we did develop in 2020 and carrying them forward to 2021. So that's um, another. It sounds like Chip sort of the the line of thought you're on. But anyway, as always, appreciate your insight and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. Thank you to Chip and Jonathan, and thank you for tuning in. If you're looking for more resources on CECL or on year-end reporting, we've got you covered. Check out our two dedicated hubs to find everything you need on each topic all in one spot. Links are in today's episode show notes. And join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursdays, join me for our series for CFOs and controllers. Starting this Thursday, we're releasing the first episode of our third season. Our focus this time around will be on the outlook for 2021 and what companies will be facing this year. Things like policy, technology, and other big picture topics, but as always from the finance lens. The first episode will focus on emerging technologies and we'll delve into the areas where the mind meets machine. It's a great kickoff episode to the series, so I hope you'll join me. So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.